Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I am excited to be with you the Sunday after Easter. We are diving back into our study in the book of Romans. We're coming to the tail end of Romans, and we're coming to a passage that we've heard many times in the last two years. It's a passage that is very important, but is also often misrepresented. And so, we'll be in Romans 13 verses 1 through 3. And so, just a little bit of backstory here. At this point in Romans, Paul has been drawing out some very deliberate applications. And this one is incredibly relevant today. But in the age of COVID lockdowns and totalitarian orders, mandates, and all kinds of stuff, this is a text that is often misconstrued or twisted this way and that. Various political persuasions make use of this text to fit their own agendas, and as such, it seems fitting to give due time to this important passage. And so before we proceed, it is important to define terms. And so there's going to be a bit of technical work that goes into um, breaking down this passage, but I'm excited to share some of what I've benefited from digging into this text. And so let us begin by reading the first three verses, and then we will go piece by piece through it. So Romans 13, verse 1 through 3, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Let's begin by breaking down some of the Greek in that first opening statement. Um, sometimes when we read the Bible in Greek, when we read the New Testament in its original language, we find nuances that didn't quite carry into the English, and such is the case with Romans 13. So that opening statement, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce the Greek, I'm not going to throw out a lot of Greek today, but ultimately, the Greek words in that phrase, there are five Greek words that give us that. And literally, the most literally, the most literal way we can render it is, every soul, authority, superior, submit. And so we translate that often to, let every person submit to the governing authorities. But that's a very generic 
phrasing. Let every soul be in subjection to the authority that is superior. And while that may be um, generic right there, Paul goes on to make it clear in the following statements who he is talking about, specifically the government. Does it apply to other aspects? Absolutely. But in this particular context, Paul is talking about the church's relationship to the state. The bottom line is that every soul ought to be in subjection to the higher powers, as John Wycliffe renders it in his English translation of the Bible in the 1300s. But the word for submit that we see here, be in subjection to, is close to the Greek word for obey. And yet Paul is making it quite clear that it is a voluntary submission. And this is, of course, modeled for us by the character of Christ. Consider what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Other translations say slave, which is Greek, doulos, slave. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Simply put, Christ does not call us to a life he himself did not live. And while we do not in any way become God, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit working within us to live according to what God has called good. And through the indwelling of that Holy Spirit, we take on a nature like Christ's. And part of us being sanctified is submissive obedience to the powers that are above us. And it's important now to try and define what Paul means by governing authorities. And the answer, I believe, lies in the Old Testament. I believe that scripture will show us that Paul's declaration of government is not new. And it's actually built on the Old Testament view of government, that there is covenantal unity between the Old and New Testaments. And this plays into how we understand Romans 13. First and foremost, I get that from the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Christ ultimately came to fulfill the law, to bring it into its fullest meaning. And within that, he does not do away with it. And so while we are not saved from the law, there is validity of the law as a guide stone for how we walk in holiness. And that there, is, there has to be a progression, because he calls us to be more righteous than the Pharisees, to exceed the, the, piety, the false piety of the Pharisees. And so there's growth that comes in here. And part of that comes from understanding the, the truer meaning of the law, which is fulfilled in Christ. And so, as we understand how 
um, we relate to the government. It is important to go to the Old Testament when God established these roles first in the history of his people. Consider the very first king of Israel. There was a point in Israel's history where they had no king. It says that they did what was right in their own eyes, and they had judges who would guide them in the right and the wrong. They had priests and the like. But there came a time where the people of Israel asked for a king. They wanted to be like other nations who had a king. And so Samuel, who was kind of the leader of Israel at the time, he wasn't a king, but he was um, a judge. And he pushed back, no, you don't want a king. Look at what other nations do. These are not the kind of people you want to emulate. But the people were adamant, we want a king. And so he consults God, and God tells him, give them a king. And in verse, the very first verse of 1 Samuel chapter 10, he says, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? So it, it's, it's made clear there that Samuel didn't appoint Saul as king, but God did. And we continue through the story of Saul. He does not act like a godly king and he starts off good he starts off well but he doesn't finish well and there, and it comes to a head in chapter 13 picking up in verse 13 it says and samuel said to saul thou hast done foolishly thou hast not kept the commandment of the lord thy god which he commanded thee for now would the lord have established the kingdom upon israel forever but now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So Saul's dominion, his reign as king, was taken from him. That his kingly dynasty, I guess you could call it, was revoked. And God instilled another king. And so God, from the beginning of the history of his people, exercise the power and authority to appoint and remove kings. But not just with Israel, for the same is demonstrated in the example of Babylon. If we go to Daniel chapter 4, at this point in history, Israel has been cast into exile. Because of sin, they were taken out of the promised land as a judgment of God, and they were taken over by Babylon. And the influential people, the leaders, the in intellectuals of Israel were taken out of Israel to serve Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel was one of them. And he served in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he interpreted dreams for him according to the power of God. And Nebuchadnezzar had a very unsettling dream. And Daniel interprets it for him that it is a pronouncement of judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. So in verse 30 of chapter 4, it says, The king spake and said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, 
until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth to whomever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. So essentially, Nebuchadnezzar in his pride became very puffed up, and God struck him down and, and reduced his mind to that of an animal. And he, for seven years, spent time in the wilderness, living as an animal, until he recognized the lordship of God over himself. And so when we get to a couple verses down, this Dan, Daniel chapter 4 is him recounting this story. And so in verse 37, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase or reduce so nebuchadnezzar had to recognize that he reigned according to the hand of god that his kingship though, though he was not israelite though he was not part of god's nation was still um according to the lord's appointment the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, that God from eternity did, according to the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and immutably, that is, unchangeably, foreordained whatsoever cometh to pass. So God sovereignly appoints and removes rulers according to his perfect wisdom, not my wisdom or anyone else's wisdom, but his soul's supply of wisdom. For us to seek revenge upon the state is, on one level, to doubt the sovereignty of God, who, in fact, instilled them. At, this, at the time that Paul is writing Romans, there have been many revolts against Rome. Some were very small, some were very tangible. There is a record of an attempt to overthrow Rome in um actually between the Old and New Testament. They called it the Maccabean Revolt. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of pushback time and time again against Rome. And so when Christ enters the scene and he takes on flesh and he dwells among men, there was an assumption that he would lead them like an army to conquer Rome and reestablish Israel as a superpower. And they would take back this land that is rightfully theirs. But when the Messiah does come, he doesn't come on a tall horse carrying weapons, but he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And many people are going, what? Turn the other cheek. He said these things because there's a perspective here that we're missing. There's, there's, a, there's another level of depth here that he's trying to bring us to. So, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's verse 1. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Ultimately, God has a purpose for instilling the wicked kings just as much as the righteous ones. Verse 3, 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear as of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And this actually builds off of something Paul was saying in Romans 12. 17 through 21 tells us, Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, Live peaceably, as much as it depends on you. Do not repay evil for evil. Again, we have this language of not seeking revenge on the state, not trying to physically overtake Rome. And we see this laid out for us also in the Old Testament. Proverbs 20 says, An inheritance may be gotten hastily at the beginning, but the end thereof shall not be blessed. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he will save thee. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false balance is not good. Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? There's a way that seems right to us in our depraved thinking, but in the end it leads only to destruction, judgment, and wrath. God calls us to walk a certain way, as we see in Proverbs, that Wait on the Lord, and he will save thee from evil. Unequal weights and measures are an abomination to God. A false balance is not good. These are things that he will deal with according to his judgment, his justice, not our understanding of it. The Jews at the time of Christ's arrival were frequently striving to overthrow Rome. The death of Herod brought with it a wave of attempted insurrections. Um, it's very interesting to dig into some of the Jewish history and all of these um, attempted revolutions. That Israel was aching to be set free from the bondage to Rome, that they were aching to be remade. Which has undertones similar to Romans 8, that the world is groaning as if with labor pains, for it yearns to be remade. But they yearn to be remade according to their picture of what the world should be, not what God says the world should be. So there's a difference here that we've got to identify. The Jews were ready to throw off the Roman occupation, even if it was without the consent of Rome. And I say that as an individual who lives in America, someone who lived who lives in a country that was born from revolution. And I personally don't believe that George Washington and our nation's founders were doing so because they were biblical Christians. I think they formulated our government off of a biblical morality, but I don't think that they were born-again Christians. And so we have this idea of revolution, but Romans 13 tells us of revolution of a different kind. Because Paul urges us not to start a physical revolution, not to take over the world, essentially. For God shall bring sufficient judgment upon wicked kings. Ecclesiastes 12 tells us as much. 
Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So ultimately, our main task is to fear God and follow him. And while we submit to the governing authorities, submission is limits. As Martin Luther once said, peace is possible, but truth at all costs. The biblical view of submission does not differ between the state and the family. So when the bride of Christ is being abused by the state, certain actions are sanctioned. Not in the realm of revolution, but when to obey God pits us against the state, we know where our loyalties lie. When the state, when the state forsakes God, we don't. And we plow in hope with both eyes to the kingdom of God, whether the state permits it or not. In Jeremiah 17 says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. That from the beginning of time, the throne of God has been our place of sanctuary. Our place of safety is the presence of God. But when we forsake God, essentially we write our names in the earth that does not last. We write our names in the dirt. And not even the foundations of this earth shall remain, but all shall be made new. So to stake our claim in the earth is to stake our claims in the temporary. But God is a fountain of living waters. It is important to note that this is the same Jeremiah who said other things. Hard things. There are a lot of hard things to read in the book of Jeremiah. Aside from the Lord Jesus, Jeremiah is my biblical hero. One of the reasons being that he was called to preach in a time when preaching was not popular. And when you read about Jeremiah, he suffered greatly for the message of repentance. That he was calling... Israel to repentance in a time when they were so enveloped in sin that it was offensive to them. He got thrown down a well. He got beat up a time or two. They were not very welcoming to Jeremiah. They were hostile to him. And yet he kept coming back. And he kept proclaiming the truth to wicked kings and priests and the like. And eventually, judgment did come on Israel did come on the city of Jerusalem through Babylon. But Jeremiah was spared, and he was led away to Egypt. But Jeremiah was faithful to preach when it wasn't popular. One of those hard statements we get is Jeremiah 25, 8-12. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, notice he says that this wicked king is his servant, and will bring them against his land, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and a hissing and perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take thee, I will take from them the voice of myrrh, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the candle, 
and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for seventy years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, I will make a perpetual desolations. This is the epitome of the saying of being in the world, but not of the world. We as Christians may, at this present moment, have to serve a type of Babylon. We may have to live in Egypt or Persia, as the Jews did. Our present magistrate may be wicked, but we live in this world as aliens and strangers always have. Our conduct in that situation is one of both submission and disobedience in a paradoxical harmony. We do not take over this land with force, but we put our hands to the plow and work fervently for a brighter future. For the greatest good for society is the gospel, whether, regardless of what the present regime may say. When the state forsakes God, we don't. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion rates against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The way we fight, the way we combat a sinful regime is not with swords, is not with hostile takeover. It's with the gospel. It's with living out the gospel. Because ultimately, that's what the church is, is an organism. It is a community of ransomed sinners and a unified body. For what purpose? For the further realization of the lordship of God over every area of life. And so by taking the gospel forward and discipling the nations, we are both obedient to the call of our king as his submissive servants, while proclaiming his judgment upon wicked kings, of whom he has appointed. We are, in a sense, building the ark. And every pound of the hammer, every beam we lay out of obedience to God, is a further testament to his judgment upon the nations, much like it was with Noah. That's not in the sense that we are Noah, but it is like Noah in the sense that our striving for the kingdom of God, every seemingly little thing we do in obedience to Christ, is a further proclamation of God's judgment upon the nations that do not repent. And in, in times like that, we can sing psalms like Psalm 43, which is a hard song to sing. It is a song of suffering. It is a song of being oppressed by the wicked and crying out to God for deliverance. It's one of my favorite psalms. I have many favorites, but Psalm 43 is one I come to a lot in our present age. And it says, Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out thy light and thy truth, and let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill, and to thy tabernacles. Then I will go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp I praise thee, O God, my God.
Why art thou cast down on my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Much like the writer of that psalm, when the nations are wicked, when the nations forsake God, we don't. And we press forward knowing that God will vindicate his people. And ultimately, the kings of the earth will bow before their king and their lord. That Biden, Putin, fill in the blank, will bow. And I don't say that from the standpoint of let's make them pay. I say that from the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, COVID is not. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, totalitarianism is not. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, nothing else is. Matthew 28. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Which is, it is true. And so he says to go and disciple the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it does so, he says, go therefore. Because all power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. He has authority over heaven and earth, and this was demonstrated to us. It was, he was inaugurated as the millennial king of, of everything when he rose from the dead. That he emptied himself and took on the humble form of a slave, and he laid down his life that he may take it up again. And he has ascended back to the Father on high. And he intercedes at the right hand for his people. And it says in Philippians 2 verse 9. That after he laid his life down. After he took on the humble form of a slave. And was obedient to the point of death. Wherefore God also highly exalted him. And gave him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth. And things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of, not the Republican Party, not to the glory of United States of America, or Babylon, or even Israel. To the glory of God the Father. And so to tie this to a close, the way we re respond to the government is the trickle down of how we respond to God. Because God is the one to whom we give an account. God is the, the one to whom we follow. And everything that does not line up with God will be made low. Because everyone who walks in pride, he is able to abase. In a sermon given by Thomas Brooks at, before he was forcibly removed from his pulpit for defying the Church of England... Thomas Brooks makes this remark, and he says, Satan knows that the very tendency of the gospel is to shake his kingdom about his ears. Satan and Antichrist know that their kingdom must go down by the power and light of the gospel. And therefore Satan and men of an anti-Christian spirit do all they can to oppose and show their hatred against the everlasting gospel. 
And this makes them to be in such a rage against the gospel. In short, we are in battle because we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And the way we relate to government, it may look different. That application may look different from person to person. I'm not in a position to make a blanket statement of how every individual should apply this verse to their lives. Because there are a lot of, of underlying principles here. Um, submitting to the government, but submitting to God. That idea of disobeying the government to obey Christ, that could look very different for someone who does open-air ministry on the streets, who has been arrested for, quote, breach of peace several times. Then it would look for someone who is a cashier at a sporting goods store. That could look more like talking with your unsaved co-worker about the gospel in the break room, as opposed to being on a soapbox on the street corner proclaiming the gospel in that, that way. And so, I can't make a blanket statement of how you should go, go out now and live this verse. Because that ultimately comes down to you and God. And like I said, this is the trickle-down of our relation to God. But I implore you to um, examine yourself and see where we need to follow Christ more. Where can we be more obedient to God, even when it puts us in an odd spot with the authorities above us, whether that is the federal government, whether that is an employer, whether that is something else. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is Lord. And everything we say, do, and think is being conformed and brought in subjection to that sole fact. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab, links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written, that's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it, I'm not selling it, it is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture, and it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative Word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.